know, I, I believe and feel very strongly that it's a shame that so often uh, we change our relationship with alcohol because we get to some kind of rock bottom of, rock bottom of sorts. But just as you've explained, isn't that because it's just not bad enough? It's just not bad enough until that yeah. point. And therefore, we don't get that, that trigger of wishing to escape that, that pain. Welcome to the 1000 Day Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I'm not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am a father, a son, a brother, a leader, a lover, a master life coach, and I spend every moment of every life helping people to live a self-led life after alcohol. A self-led life coming from a place of compassion, clarity, and consciousness. I want you to know that when you become someone that doesn't drink alcohol, that does not mean that the journey is over, that the journey is ended. Yeah, hurrah, get the kazoos out, get the medals out with someone who doesn't drink alcohol. No, that is a signifies the start of the journey because the most important aspect of life is learning to love all parts of yourself, including those parts in the shadows, to become a beautiful, embodied, amazing, wholesome version of you that can show up for yourself, that can show up for your parents, that can show up for your loved ones, your children, your friends, your colleagues, your work colleagues, everything, right? And that is really important. And that's what we're here to do at Stride and the 1000 Days Sober Podcast. And I want to start it out by reading you a chapter of my new book, The Strive Method. Um, control alcohol for 30 days before it controls you for 30 years. And the first chapter is called Choice. You didn't come into the world full of the joys of spring. That first cry was not one born from jubilance. Oh, no. That first cry was fear as you drew poison into your lungs. So it's little wonder that our first contact with another human being remains with us for the rest of our lives. Children look at mothers and fathers subconsciously feeling a biological imperative to receive admiration, respect and love. They are the kings and queens of this cold and frightening world, and you desperately need their love and attention. You cling to their breasts, you pull on their skirts and hold their thumbs as you cross the road. They are your everything. Consciously and subconsciously, you devour every aspect of their behavior, unknowingly modeling your future adulthood on their every move, even if we despise them. Eventually, we become miniature versions of them through no fault of our own. All children experience a paradox of wanting to remain in that creative, carefree aura for life and wishing to belong in the adult world. Imagine its impact on our psyche when we see our parents drinking alcohol like water. Maybe they allow us to try a little while laughing with your uncles and your aunts, your grandparents, all drinking from the same forbidden fruit. At half term, you take your teacher a bottle of wine. It doesn't matter how old you are, your parents and your friends' parents all drank alcohol at your birthday party. Every wedding, funeral, christening you went to, you saw the adults drinking. And then on Christmas Eve, as you prepare for the most exciting night of the year, you leave a carrot for Rudolph and a can of lager for Santa Claus, waking up excited to see that the man with the big red nose had opened it and drank the lot. Later, as you have Christmas dinner, everyone will have a toast. And in that glass lies the same incredible stuff. If you're religious, you learn that Jesus turned water into wine. In the Sistine Chapel, a fresco depicts Noah in a state of drunken disarray. In the beginning, way before pubs were a thing, there was a guy on an ark 
the future of humanity in his hands and he decided to make wine and get smashed. In his book, The Species of Denial, a treatise on the human condition, the evolutionary biologist Jeremy Griffith talked about a process he called reservation. And it goes a little something like this. Children experience a world from a place of pure creativity and unbounded love. The essence of humanity shines through every one of them. Play, fun, joy, all there wrapped up in a little skin suit. And then comes the teenage years. It's as if you open your bedroom door and stand at the entrance to a grand hallway. At the other end is the door to adulthood and you desperately want to open it, but there is a price to pay. It is a matrix blue or red pill moment, but at this age, you've never seen the movie. You do not know who Morpheus and Neo are. And if you take the red pill, you remain as you are. You continue to express that inner artist, the playful cherubic soul lights up the world, while at the same time, people ostracize you, ridicule you, and shame you for your difference. If you take the blue pill, you sell your soul to the devil. Your goal changes from belonging to a desperate need to fit in. You don't emanate from the inside out. You function from the outside in. With your light dimmed, your energy source arrives in a form of likes and smiley face emojis. You feel light. And so many of us take the blue pill. We resign, as Griffith puts it. We forget our way. We shun individualism for the desperate need to fit in at any tribe at all costs. We pick up on the rules of each tribe quickly, and one of them is to drink alcohol and lots of it. One of the calamities of humanity is the loss of healthy ritualization from childhood to adulthood. Instead, we have pseudo-rituals, and one of them is this insidious cultural drive to drink alcohol. To stand on the top of a pub table with an eyeball facing east and another one facing west as you pour the elixir of life down your throat, blackening your heart. Alcohol is ubiquitous. Alcohol is a critical part of the shift into adulthood as sex is. And the truth of the matter is, we have been waiting for this moment from the beginning of time. From the moment we first crawled through the vernix to rest on our mother's breast, we wanted to belong and do what is needed to be accepted as normal, functioning, and respectful part of this crazy thing called life. Ladies, gentlemen, when it comes to your decision to drink alcohol, I want you to know that you never had a choice. Never. The alcohol industry and the institutions that support it have designed you from birth to be someone that doesn't drink alcohol, and I urge you to find some compassion for yourself in that truth. You never had a choice. But here's the thing. Today, you do. So for your next steps, I want you to stand in front of a mirror, and with all the love and emotion you can muster, repeat 50 times, more if needed, and hell, make it a daily ritual if you have to. I didn't have a choice when it came to drinking alcohol. I didn't have a choice. But today I do have a choice. Today I choose not to drink alcohol. Honor your vow. Choose not to drink alcohol today. And that's chapter one of my book, The Stride Method. And if you want to get your hands on that, then email me at thestridemethod.gmail.com and I'll get you a copy of it and $915 of free gifts. Now on to our next guest, Wendy Laban. She is a full-time mom to her, some would say, ridiculously large family, if you think seven children is large. Uh, she lives down by the sea in beautiful South Devon. She loves her long walks with her dog. She loves running. She loves wild swimming. And she also loves this self-development adventure she finds herself on since being alcohol-free one of four years ago. And today's episode is a chit-chat about all things sobriety, and I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it. So without further ado, I'll shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of Wendy Laban. Okay, Wendy Laban, welcome. You think this is a podcast pod, right? 
I do. Well, it's exactly what it looks like. Exactly it's actually, what it looks like. It's actually a shed. Yeah, I need to get myself a shed to hide in from all my children. Well, it's a funny thing, right? I I come out the shed because, like, I, I'm actually doing trusted house sitters. So I'm traveling around looking after people's animals. So I'm currently in Shropshire, in, near Ludlow, between Ludlow and Lemster. And I'm in the most beautiful farmyard um, looking after a cat. But the, we're living in a barn. It's beautiful, but it's not very um, quiet. So I can hear Zia and Liza. So I've come out here, but all our neighbors are going to hear our conversation probably. <laughs> That's okay. They might learn a thing or two. Yeah, you never know. But yeah, so here I am in this shed. It looks like a sauna though, doesn't it? It does. It, it, I like it. I'm, I'm going to sort of manifest this in my thoughts as something to aim for. Well, I mean, it is an interesting thing, you know, like when people have, um, you know, take money issues, for example, right? I've got no money and um, can't afford anything, et cetera, and all this kind of stuff. And here we are now traveling around the world, staying in people's homes rent-free while looking after their animals. And whilst it's a bit of a pain that we have to, like, set up podcasts in garden sheds, <laughs> in, you know, it does it does allow you I mean, this 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 property, for example, is uh, is like super super prosperous. So it allows you to get into that prosperous vibe and that prosperous energy um, without actually forking out the money. Yeah, that's my wisely done, Lee. Wisely. That wasn't my idea. <laughs> it was Liza's idea. Yeah, I'm I'm there. I'm there. Now nah, let's just book an hotel. But like Liza's uh, Liza's idea. So yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. So what have you been up to, Wendy? Oh, golly gosh. I've been enjoying the advent of warmer weather. I've mm. been swimming in the sea. I've been walking my dog, lots of long walks with my dog. I've been choosing a limiting belief per dog walk to try and unpick. Smashing. As wacky as that may sound to some, but it's it's been so empowering and um i find myself in this chemically recalibrated headspace now and all of this um this stuff has become uh not just interesting to me but i've got the wherewithal to feel brave enough to challenge some of this nonsense that i've been carrying around with me all my life for 27 years <laughs> So, um, what was your what was your most recent limiting belief that you were trying to smash? My most recent limiting belief is that I'm not someone who can read every single day. Oh wow! Okay. And I so I went in and I said, "Okay, what's this all about? What what do I have as stories inside of myself telling me that? And where and and what are they founded in? Where where are they? What are they rooted in?" And I was coming up with all sorts of things and, and and some of them are embarrassing even to admit to myself, but for goodness sake, if you don't dig this stuff up mm. and stick it on the table, you can't, you can't begin to move forward, can you? And no. so one of the stupid elements of it was that as a very young child, I saw people that read every day, we're talking primary school age, yeah. as the boring ones, the boffins. Mm. I didn't want to be a boring boffin. I wanted to be the fun person that people wanted to play with at break times. And I honestly think I had carried that into my adult life. Um, 
that somehow if I began uh, curated a habit of reading every day, I may become dull. Mm. Mm. So I've had to start writing um, sort of affirmations out. Um, you know, you know, reading is uh, reading will bring me growth. Um, I am someone who reads every day. Um, you know, um, reading is um, nourishing and enlightening. Um, all of this sort of stuff. So I've had to just sort of switch it around and, and tell myself a better story. I think yeah. I'm guessing that. I've been well, reading I mean, your book today. It's working. Have you? What do you think? I love it. I think that um, it's the kind of book that you, depending on where you are in your alcohol-free journey, some of it won't land properly until you're further along in the journey. So I think it's a book people would need to just flipping while keep reading, like on a cycle mm. between mm. years one and four or five. Mm. Um, or maybe I'm just projecting how it would have been for me, but a lot of what I'm able to grasp now and work with and do something about, I don't think I could have in the very early stages um, for whatever reason. And then a yeah. lot of that to me feels like, I, I feel as though the inside of my body was a bit like a mixing desk with all the faders and dials. And I'd been pouring poison on it for a long time. And so everything was out of sync. Everything was wonky. The melody I was able to bring to the world was all sort of unpleasant. And as I, the longer I was alcohol free and the longer my body was able to sort of take me back to the factory reset chemically and hormonally, with the aid and assistance of eating well and looking after my well-being, getting out in nature, moving my body more, getting enough sleep, connecting. Um, I, I'm now able to, I feel as though my, my mixing desk, my knobs and my dials are in the right place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and as a result, I am sort of chemically more well predisposed now to to go at life more effectively and to read something inside your book and think, all right, I'm brave enough to do that. I can understand the logic in that. And I'm calm enough and sort of measured enough and balanced enough to walk into this new situation and try this new hat on, this new technique that Lee's on about when I'm communicating with my partner or whatever. Mm. Whereas in the very, very early stages of, of my sobriety, although I had almost spontaneous sobriety, in that I suddenly realised I was caught up in a game, in this sort of a game of trickery and, and deceit. I also felt very raw for quite a while, very yeah. naked. I felt very exposed. I don't know how mm. else to describe it. Mm. Yeah. Tell me more about that. The rawness. Mm. Um, it was just a feeling of I had absolute certainty almost from day one, that I didn't want to drink this. Can I swear? Yeah. I didn't want to drink this shit yeah. anymore. Um, it, it, it just, I'm very grateful that I had that almost immediate switch. Um, and, it, and it just awoken, it woke for me the power of my own mind. You know, I'm, I, I was believing a different story, making up a different story. Now I've got this other story um, that, that, that um, changes everything. And so the power of my own beliefs effectively switched on the power of my own ability to to live life alcohol free but I felt very raw and very naked not not simply because 
I felt as though I was always the only only person in the room or at the party or on the street or on the school run or in the shop that was alcohol free. But I also felt very raw and naked because I didn't have anything to hide behind anymore. Mm. And I um, I pretty much didn't know who I was. So I couldn't wake up in the morning and put on the clothes and the layers of who I am mm. because I'd taken them all off and thrown them in the corner of the room. But now I didn't want to put them on anymore because mm. they were knitted together with shit. So I mm. wanted to put them on a new set of clothes, but I didn't know what they were yet. I don't know if that made any sense, did it? Yeah. I mean, the, um, I th- you know, the, there's a couple of things there that uh, come up for me. One of them is like not knowing who you are. Um, I still go through that now a little bit. So I'm like 13 years maybe without having a drink, but, and I've, I've gone through different phases. So alcohol being, becoming alcohol free was one phase. And then I would say right now, um, and that, and that's led to an identity crisis. And then I come out of that thinking, Oh, this is who you are. So I looked in the mirror and I saw this sober guy. I was like, Oh, that's who you are. Wow. This is much improved version. And now I'm going through this process of trying to spend more time in self energy and love my egoic parts and try to be more grounded and take more responsibility and well, 100% responsibility. And now I'm going through another identity shift. So I'm going through another stage of, um, excitement, confusion, anger, frustration, um, particularly in relationships, you know, they can really trigger that kind of like, okay, so I'm in the past, I've been, this is who I am. This is how I want to behave. And nobody's told me any different. And and now my wife is uh, my, my second wife is very different to my first wife. And she's always telling me um, how, how I'm pissing her off and upsetting her. And I guess my first wife did as well, but I probably didn't give a fuck back then. So I'm, I'm constantly, last night was a good example. I'm, I upset her and I was so angry that I wanted her to take responsibility. And, and there was a part of me internally arguing myself, you know, like, um, well, who are you? Do you really want to be this guy? Like, you know, like, like there literally was a fight between two different parts. It was one part saying, no, you're this guy. And another part going, no, but we want to be this guy. And another part going, no, what with this guy? And then I just get a little bit flustered and yeah, frustrated. And but I, I just think that that, that is giving into that and allowing it to control your life is almost like giving your ego the the opportunity to rule the roost. It's almost like giving up, like you know. So I just go in the garden, slip my shoes, shoes and socks off, get my feet in the dirt, and I just. I am Lee. You ever seen the the Marvel that at Guardians of the Galaxy with Groot? I am Groot. Yes, Solly says. So I just keep going. <laughs> I am Lee. I am Lee, and then I I feel a bit better. But I, yeah, I totally, I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah, I mean the healing process. I think of it as the healing process, to be honest with you, because um, I, and I don't want that to necessarily conjure up the image of me being fully broken inside when I came to choose not to drink anymore. But it is a healing process because I feel like I've been inside this kind of crazy machine, this alcohol-fueled machine. And I weirdly, I'm still, I'm, I'm still 
in this matrix, sort of, because I can't step out of necessarily the culture that I am in and my children are, are growing up within this culture, but yet I am healing within whilst still being within that wider context of nonsense. Mm-hmm. And I find that very tricky because, for example, we talk about, I think about how much I prefer to connect and socialize with people that are alcohol free because no repetition, no less ego, even mm-hmm. um, deeper, more meaningful um, conversations that you and you hold space for one another more effectively. And you, there's much more mindful listening going on. But so rarely am I able to have that wonderful mm. interaction with someone because literally I'm the only person on the street, in the shop, on the school run, at the party. Yeah. Um, and so with this healing process comes an awful lot of frustration and sadness, actually. And like you were just saying, I mean, I, I was saying how I didn't know who I was when I first stopped drinking. Of course, I still don't know who I am. And it's a journey and, I'm, and, it, and it's a journey I'll be delighted to be on for the rest of my life. Hmm. Um, however, it's, you know, something that I find frustrates me is when people sometimes pop out social media messaging um, and they're alcohol free, which is wonderful. But it's almost alcohol free means happiness, no anxiety, um, Brilliant, <laughs> and 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 of course, and th- and then you sort of struggle to sort of burst that bubble because you don't want to put anyone off from trying this gig. Mm-hmm. But really and truly, it's all a bit like that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. When you stop drinking, and and the, the beauty of it is, is that by and large, you you sort of have the bandwidth, the mental bandwidth. And this kind of what I keep coming back to, this sort of chemical recalibration that can carry you through the process. But you have to be, um, you have to want to actually um, use that agency that you've now discovered you've got insofar as your own well-being. You want to, you have to be proactive about it and you have to want to step into this crazy world of, of healing. Mm, yeah otherwise you can just you could just you could just stop drinking and still be mindless you mm. know you, you you know you just you know, so all of a sudden you just you're a bad dad who doesn't drink as opposed to as opposed to a bad dad who yeah. Yeah, does yeah, yeah. drink i mean bad's the wrong word i don't like to use that word but um you know it's i think i think becoming alcohol free i don't know you know Never thought about it before. Maybe, maybe the whole alcohol thing is a is a red herring. Maybe if we didn't drink, we would still be dragged into the matrix by societal conditioning, and we would still repress and suppress our emotions. We would still um, have unresolved trauma and inner child issues. And because we're not really taught how to deal with those things, we probably would just go through life not drinking, but maybe doing something else like physically or mentally uh, or emotionally abusing people, um, eating disorders, wh- whatever, something else would, would come up, you know? Um, so this is like, like the crux of my work. And it's interesting you say how 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that my work and what I talk about is not attractive to people who just want to give up drinking <laughs> sometimes and because it's deeper. And, mm. um, but that, that comes from, that comes from my unwavering belief in the power of a human being to like 10,000 X where they are to where they want to be. Right. Like, so someone can say, I am not ready. Like, like something, like something simple. Let's say someone, I work with someone and we recognize that, um, one of the reasons, uh, let's say it's a woman. One of the reasons a woman is drinking is because, um, she, is just cannot communicate with her husband and they just keep fighting. He's bullying her and she feels unsafe when he comes on. So she drinks. So it's like, okay, do you ever talk to him about it? No. All right. Okay. So we need to talk to him about it. And it's like, Whoa, I can't, I can't do that. Like I am not ready for it. Maybe naked, maybe raw, right? I am not ready to have that conversation with this guy. And I'm thinking in my head, yeah, you are. You're just, you're just playing it safe. Like you are, but you don't want to go there yet. You, you want to take it slowly and we can take it slowly and you'll get there in six months or a year or whatever, but you literally can get there right now. If you go downstairs and have a conversation with him, the only thing it's stopping you is the fear, right? So, so I'm a great believer in that. And, um, but, uh, but I definitely think I'm in the minority. <laughs> most, most people want to buy a program or a book that, just says, I don't know, like, just, I don't know, silly shit. Honestly, I look at some people's stuff and I'm just like, well, pe people will buy this? And mm. surely they, they just, <laughs> surely they go back drinking or something. I cannot see how this can change someone's life. Like, I, I look at it through my lens and my experience. I'm like, there's no way that 30-day experience, for example, is going to change their life. No, nobody's going to read my book in 30 days and like, no, that's not true. It's unusual for somebody who's going to read my book in 30 days and never drink again. But the whole point of the book is to introduce them to everything we've got going at Strive and the Strive Method, right? Um, but yeah, I, I just think human beings are just so freaking powerful and they don't really get it that they are. No, exactly. Exactly that. And I keep coming back to the power of our beliefs because literally nothing changed other than the story I was telling myself about alcohol, which yeah. kind of shrinks it to nothing, but is also massive because nothing changed other than the stories I was telling myself. And then everything's changed because I am telling myself a different story. And, um, you know, it's if you don't tell yourself a different story about alcohol, but you just stop drinking it for X amount of time because you want to lose weight or because you want to prove to yourself that you're someone who can take a break. Therefore, you don't have a problem. Um, the story hasn't changed. No. So alcohol at that point is still on the pedestal, is still linked to various. I'm going to say myths. Um, in your mind and and even if in that scenario you 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 stick with that original story about alcohol that's held you in that space all that time previously even if you are then a non-drinker but the story hasn't changed the rest of your life isn't what I call a peaceful 
happy life because <laughs> you will constantly be thinking, oh, look at those guys over there in that beer garden. Oh, but having so much fun. My life's just, you know, yeah, I've lost a few pounds, but oh, I can only just have a glass of that. And it's not life, is it? It's not happy, peaceful, fulfilled life. Um, well, and you're going you're gonna to lose as well, you? I mean, once you have that internal battle between, you know, if you're, if you're having that internal battle, like, shall I have a chocolate cake or not? Shall I have a drink or not? Shall I have that cigarette or not? Shall I, shall I watch some porn or not? Shall I gamble or not? Like once you're having that conversation in your head, you're screwed, right? It's only a matter of time before, before you go in the drink. Right, because it's really difficult to beat that, um, which is very different to, and it's the hardest part to teach anybody in the journey. Is you know what you're talking about? We call it the vow in stride. It's like every cell in your body just knows that you're never going to drink again because you see no value in it. You despise it. You hate it. To drink it would now be like joining the dark side. You would be throwing your integrity under the bus. You would be no man or no woman worth anything on this planet like you get to that place and then it's just like why would you like why would you drink it and then but that that's like really really difficult to teach people you know it's like um i have a client um and she'll drink alcohol when she gets overwhelmed right so she'll get overwhelmed and she'll drink alcohol so her story is i need to drink alcohol to deal with my overwhelm right it's like of course you don't of course you don't because if we put a gun against your kid's head and said, if you drink that alcohol right now, I'm going to pull this trigger. Now, her overwhelm is now exacerbated 100x because you've now got a gun to a child's head as well as the overwhelm she's feeling because she doesn't get any alcohol. There's no way she's going to drink alcohol because what's going to happen is the human body, which is designed to handle overwhelm, will just handle it and she won't drink. Right. So then then we need to ask ourselves, well, what's that all about then? If I'm really pushed to the limit, right, if I'm told like I will die if I drink another pint of that stuff or I will leave you, I am going if you drink another pint or your kids, I will never speak to you again, mom. Those what people call rock bottom moments. Right. If if somebody always meets something like that, we call it catabasis. It pulls you out of your you're a different way of thinking and you're forced into it well you know you need to ask yourself well if i can be forced into it what's going on and and a lot of times i i think that it is um there's a a lack of grit um and it's not there because we have created a story that alcohol has so much value and because of that value we just don't have the passion or the perseverance which equals grit to get through those bumps, to, to be able to go, like, I want to drink. Ugh. Okay, I knew this is going to happen. I just got to jump in the sea, or I got to go for a run, or I got to go surf, or I got to phone a friend for two hours, or whatever, right? What tends to happen is it just like, I need a drink. Uh, I don't like this overwhelm. Drink. I'll try again tomorrow, right? You know? That absence of of having anything else in our sort of arsenal to cope with life, to summarise it, I suppose, is a classic, classic symptom of being caught up in this alcohol matrix machine. Because, you know, as much as it and of itself, it's damaging to us physically and mentally, um, 
when we get caught up in always using it as the answer and the solution to everything, we're not we're not becoming aware of all the other things we can do to relax and calm down and um, mitigate feelings of overwhelm. And so in very many ways, the, the benefits of not drinking are so much about not just the loss of the poison to the body, but the opening up of the world of actual ways <laughs> to live life on planet Earth meaningfully. And interestingly or not, um, I suffered hugely from overwhelm and much of my interpretation of why I drank um, all those years ago is now retrospective awareness. I did not have that clarity at the time. Yeah. But looking back, my, um, my drinking was an, an awful lot bound up in feelings of overwhelm. And interestingly, now that I don't drink, I know, I know that a lot of that overwhelm was brought on by the alcohol. Mm. Um, that isn't to say that, I mean, I still have days where I feel overwhelmed, but I just stop for a minute and do some box breathing. When I'm laughing while I'm saying it, but I stop for a minute and do some box breathing and it's like magic dust. Yeah. I mean, even now, I mean, I, did, I think I did this before, but even now if we just slow down, our conversation, change our tone and speak a little bit like this, then it becomes a little bit more relaxing, right? So, you know, it's like there's so many things, simple things, you know, like people talk about box breathing and uh, all these different types of breathing. Just, 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 just do this. Ah! No. <laughs> you know? But, but yeah, you know, we've never been we've never been taught those things, have we? And um, I, I think that I think human beings are biologically inherently lazy bastards. So what tends to happen is, you know, if we know if we let's say we're feeling overwhelmed and all of a sudden we we have a trigger toolkit. So we've got these five things in our trigger toolkit and it could be we know we're going to be triggered for two hours. So the trigger toolkit needs to fill those two hours. So we kind of put things on there like, OK, I'm going to go for a run. That's going to take me 40 minutes. Um, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to do some weightlifting. I'm going to do some meditation for 20 minutes. So I'm going to watch one of Lee's videos or I'm going to phone a friend. But you all have to do They all mean you have to do something. Right. Versus going to the fridge and cracking open a beer and sitting on your ass. Right. So there's that kind of like inherent laziness. And actually, uh, Dominic, one of our uh, uh, guys in Strife, Dominic said it was his laziness that actually got him through it. Because when he looked at his trigger toolkit, he's like, I'm not going to do that. And he, and he made a vow that he wouldn't drink until he'd done it. So he's like, I'm not doing those, so I'm just not going to drink. <laughs> so oh, he, actually, he, actually, he actually used his laziness to his advantage. You know? I, I mean, that. for everybody listening here who's thinking, Lee, you haven't got a clue. You haven't had a drink for 13 years. What do you know? And you're, I'm being a bit harsh. I just honestly think you, that you've got the unused resources and the unused power within yourself. It's already there, and you can do it if you really, really want to. But very often the, the pain's not there. You, you wouldn't believe, Wendy, how many people I see. Um, uh, so before they become a client of mine, they'll, they'll ring me up and we'll have a little call for 20 minutes. And um, so I'll say, okay, so how bad is this drinking got then? 
oh, it's fucking so bad. Like, I'm fucked. I'm drinking every night. It's, there's no way out of it. Okay, you're married. Yeah. Um, what's the likelihood that your wife's going to leave you then? Uh, no, nah, it's not going to happen. Okay, you got kids? Yeah, I got four. Okay, so what's the likelihood that kids going to be impacted for this? Well, really, they don't really see me uh, drinking, really, because I kind of drink when they go to bed. Okay, uh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm in software. All right, any chance you're going to lose your job? Not really, because I work from home. Okay, uh, what about intimacy with your partner? Yeah, that's not great. Okay, so how often are you having sex? Having sex once a month. You know, I can put up with that, I guess. So all of it, are you going to lose your home? No. Are you ever going to be without money? No. Everybody will look after you. So it's like, okay, how are you going to give up drinking then? Because nothing's going to, nothing changes. There's no pain, right? You can tell yourself, oh, this is really painful. This is really difficult. But we, our bodies, our minds, um, as, as uh, people stuck in the alcohol addiction matrix or alcoholism, as I call it, this invisible violent dominant belief system, we train ourselves to be able to handle so much pain and it'd be okay. You think of those hangovers, you think of those ridiculous things you did and you said and you, people you slept with. We do all those things and we can handle it, you know? So it really, we do have to, in a way, um, conjure up something and create something. This is where the storytelling comes in, right? Yeah. If you're struggling with alcohol addiction, you're in luck. At no time in history have there been so much choice to find sobriety as there is today. So why the STRIVE method? Where so many processes focus on quitting alcohol, the STRIVE method helps you get to the root of the reason why you drink alcohol. You can quit alcohol and still emanate from a place of pain and suffering. Who wants that? I certainly didn't. I feel I understand myself better than any time in my life. The STRIVE method didn't just help me quit alcohol, it helped save my marriage and learn to be myself for the first time in my life. It's more than a place I want to be, it's a place I have to be. You know, I, I believe and feel very strongly that it's a shame that so often uh, we change our relationship with alcohol because we get to some kind of rock bottom of rock bottom of sorts. But just as you've explained, isn't that because it's just not bad enough? It's just not bad enough until that yeah. point, and therefore we don't get that that trigger of wishing to escape that that pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure I know what the answer is um, with that, because we have this incredibly large group of grey area drinkers that we want to sort of catch and stop them wasting any more of their life with this shit. Mm. But they haven't got enough to lose as they see it. No, they, they actually think they're... Their, their fourth gear, <laughs> they actually think their fourth gear is their first gear. I mean, mm. look, I mean, like my, when I stopped drinking, I, at the time I was drinking, I, I was like making good money. I was um, very senior in the railway industry, very respected, had lots of friends. Like I was making some good money playing poker. I was, I was doing fine. 
And then I, uh, I stopped drinking and then I, I was like, oh, wow, I've got a few more gears here. And then mm. literally I would say when I did the elementum coaching and Kaboom coaching in 2021, so you're talking 10, 10 to 12 years after I stopped drinking, I then accelerated up many more levels because I was surrounded by these people who were just basically saying, God, Lee, you're a dick. <laughs> oh, my God, Lee. In a nice way. They weren't saying it like this way. But in a way that coaches do, they were just calling me out on all of my shit, right? And I, and I was like, oh, wow. And then I realized I had even more gears to go up. And, and, and where I am now, and I'm not trying to be, like, cocky or arrogant or anything. I, like, I still think that I've nowhere near hit anywhere near the peak of my powers. And I probably mm. won't. You know, like we we're just so infinite in our capabilities to do and be whoever we want to be. We've just got to want it bad enough, right? Like, exactly. you know, can I give you an example? Yeah. So the other day I was eating out. So my my wife and my daughter just come back to see. I haven't seen them for three months. So they came over and we've been, been away for three months. So we both had time to heal our rifts in our relationship. She's been beautiful. And we was in this place called Chapter in Cardiff the other day. And uh, Zia had porridge. And I wanted to test if it was hot or not. So I literally dangled my little finger in it and just to see if it was hot. And Liza said, um, have you washed your hands? And I said, yeah. And she said, when? And I said, when I came in. And she said, have you been to the bathroom since? And I started to get angry. And then a couple of moments later, she was, the food came, some other, some other food came, and I picked up some halloumi off her plate and put it on another plate with Zia. And she said, you're doing it again, putting, putting your food in your hands. And I'm thinking to myself, why is she pushing me away? Why, why, is, she, why is she being so aggressive? Why is she making such a big thing over this? Why can't she see? that I'm not trying to hurt my daughter or hurt her, that I, I obviously have been doing this for 40 years where I just literally eat with my hands, right? Or I pick things with my hands. So last night we were having a, trying to have a conversation around this and Liza was saying to me, I was saying to Liza, why can't you be more gentle? And then Liza was saying to me, well, when you come to me about these things and you talk about the halloumi and the porridge, why do you attack me? Why, why, why don't you come to me and be, be strong in your masculine energy, but be soft, and then I can come out of my feminine energy? So later that night, I was thinking to myself, okay, that conversation ended fairly well, and I felt her soften towards me. And that's all I want in life. Like I, I want her in a feminine. I want her to be um, spending more time there. So actually the way to do that is to actually just do what she says. So when she complains and moans and groans about my dirty hands and stuff, rather than me hold on to this story that I really need her to take responsibility for that and own up that she is being out of order or whatever my story is, I actually just need to inject a little bit of humor in that moment, get into my feminine, be kind of cool with it. And then later on in a very, um, compassionate and loving and respectful way, bring it to her attention without drifting into that toxic masculinity. And if I do that, she will soften. If I keep saying to her, 
but you're not taking responsibility. You need to look at this. You need to look at that. I'm not the only one that should be doing this, right? If I take that lead, which is what my body wants to, we'll just be fighting until we get divorced, you know? And, and that, that to me is an example, I think, of, of, of growth and how hard it is to make a relationship work for some people. Like Liza's uh, avoidant attachment style, I'm anxious attachment style, very difficult pairing, right? Like it's so much easier to just say, ah, oh, fuck this shit. I'm just going to fight. I'm just going to argue. And then your kids watch that and your kids pick that up and then your kids become that, right? I mean, there's there's been a lot of um, progress for me in this. I don't know why I find it tricky to call it a journey. I think it's because everyone calls it a journey but I'll just call it a journey. So this journey, since going alcohol-free, um, I find it, I find I am capable of putting in the pauses. Mm-hmm. There's, there's something about my alcohol-free um, life, brain, body, that can now literally, not every time, and I own that, not every mm. time, but a lot of the time, I can put the pauses in and, 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 and I, and I like the fact that sometimes after I've put a pause in and that pause can be half an hour, half a day overnight. I like how sometimes what I feel I want to bring back into the conversation with the person is exactly the same thing as the pre-pause emotional response that I had. But I like the fact that that gives me a chance to check in with that initial response and sort of double check that it's coming from the right place it's come from a helpful place and it's you know not just coming from an angry or triggered place and I just find that I didn't I couldn't put pauses in there were there were no pauses in my life previously and so I'm grateful for the pauses because there's power in a pause isn't there oh yeah and um allowing other people to have their pauses (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's not easy for me. I, I have always felt really uncomfortable when there's, like if me and you are talking, there, there, there is, um, there's still a part of me uh, at work, which is for this, uh, quite funny because I've, in- I've interviewed, must be over a thousand people in my life, right? And I still have to check in with myself about when the pause, when is the right, when does Wendy start speaking? <laughs> that makes yeah. sense. Which is yeah. like really crucial if you're in a conflict situation at home. And I'm always getting it wrong because I'm, I'm either desperate to say something or I literally just don't know that she stopped speaking. I, I remember me and me and Liza, when we were trying first to fix this, we would use the, um, you know, the talking stick. It was never a yeah. stick. It was always a, it was always a newspaper or a remote control or something that we could twat each other over the head with who weren't listening. But that that really helped me because it was like a because it was a structure, right? It was like I can't, I can't, I know I can't speak until I get the stick. Yeah, I know. I just shut up, you know, and I just yeah. shut up and I listen, and that really helped me. I mean, I I recently came across this concept of of um. I mean, it's not a new concept, for goodness sake, but I came across it, of mindful listening. And this this idea that when we give people the space and time and the pauses in, in the conversation, so we don't jump straight in as soon as there's a pause. When we give them some time, we're helping them, we're facilitating their 
they're moving around in the within the corridors of their mind and they might be able they might just be about to be turning left and then turning right again and finding this fabulous nugget of something to say to us that will benefit us but if we've jumped in right there before they've opened that door in the corridor of their mind and popped along that little um passageway and then turned left or right we both miss out potentially mm-hmm. and so i I've, i've found that to be so helpful now i think oh they might be just about to unlock a door and into some a room of wisdom and it's going to benefit us both so yeah still learning but well I, i guess it's, it's for me it's like getting used to i mean what happens like most of the time is you just you just jive right like you you just like a dance and you get it and the flow's right but there are sometimes you you connect with people and, and you, there's just no the dance the the timing is not there and it's just being okay with the fact that you just shut up and then there's a really long silence that you know oh right okay i, I get it's just experience and and you know yeah. you can i think what really helped me was like when i did the elementum coaching program and then started to really do more and more one-on-one coaching of course one of the key things is to give your client you know enough time to speak to talk and to and listening is really important i would say that my coaching practice actually actually helped me a great deal in my relationship with liza um mm-hmm. and other people um to be able to take a step back you know um So yeah. I want to talk to you about children a little bit. Yeah. Because I know you have a tribe. Tell 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 the people how, how many children you've got and 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 why did you end up having such a big family because it's such a huge commitment and decision. Yeah. Right? I mean, well, I'll tell you. So seven children, 6, 8, 10, 12, 18, 21, 23. So the first three children um were born within my first marriage mm-hmm. and then the other four within my second and first three children were planned and then my my new husband um not new now but new at the time we planned to have two children mm-hmm. and and two slipped through the net <laughs> but, it, but it was beautiful because we we were we were trying not to have any more children but we weren't really happy with that but we knew we had to be sensible and not have any more and we were protecting ourselves and yet they were still born and conceived mm. so um so more than happy with it um it's you know golly i i could sit and i could focus only on the disadvantages and only on the the things that i can't do right now because i've got such a large family but that doesn't serve me or help me so i prefer to focus on all the positives that having a large family brings me and um i can honestly say that i just feel very grateful to be able to fully immerse myself in one of the most important jobs in the world how is it how was it cuz like i i've been in and around and and my journeys around the world while license here I've been in america I've, been, i've stayed with families with uh, very young children like um Uh, what stay one family had uh, three children under five you know and um the the the, the woman was struggling i mean they were, they were both struggling but in very different ways yeah and, and um, i could see the disconnect between the man and the woman like because they they were both struggling but they they weren't willing to 
experience and understand the other person's suffering. There was something missing, allowing them to share and get beyond it, you know. So what was it like for you having youngers? Um, my first marriage and the first three children, um, my first husband worked extremely hard and was not at home very much of the time because he was um, he'd started up a, a, a business of his own and there was an awful lot to do at work and it, you know I, I felt as though I was um, on my own a lot mm. and so uh, there almost wasn't enough scope for us to interact for me to have the answer to your question um, in that regard um, I got very um, down at times. Mm. I think a lot to do with sleep deprivation. I mean, my first two children were 18 months apart and the next one came along when um, another couple of years or two or three years later. And everything within me was depleted, I mm. suppose. And, and maybe if I'd had the opportunity to um, interact more meaningfully with my husband... Maybe that may have been therapeutic for me. Um, but really, for me, it was a solo experience that bringing up those first three children. And um, I do wonder whether that was why I found it particularly tricky. My second marriage has been very different in that my husband now has had far more time um, because he doesn't have the same intensely self-employed status um he's got far more time to spend with his children mm. and the ones he's um inherited so to speak <laughs> and um he's a wonderful stepfather and and the experience has been very very different for me and I, I I do sometimes ponder on whether that's why I was able to let go of alcohol because I I on some level I had this what do you call it when you're sort of coming out of a big jump in gymnastics as a safety mat there was a safety net underneath me around me cushioning me I had this sense that it's all right you can take your foot off the gas now because mm. you've got this support you've got this love around you and this the relationship's been very different and I have coped far better with four more children mm. um the alcohol thing was very, very tied up for me in the feeling of overwhelm. You know, when I was feeding my babies myself, I'd be clock watching, oh, I need to get the dinner sorted. Oh, goodness sake. And I haven't even run the bath yet. And I haven't even done that paperwork I said I'd do. And I haven't even phoned that person I wanted to ring. And, you know, really sort of piling on the, um, I don't know, the uh, being too hard on myself. And not realizing that if I could be kind to myself and just do what I could each day, everything would be all right. Um, but I, I didn't have that headspace, mm. that mindset at the time. Um, I don't know if I've answered your question very well, Lee. Um, well, it's more of a conversation than a question, isn't it? Yeah. It's just, you know, it's like. Um, you know, I want to add. I want to add to that. It's like my my struggle with this whole thing. So obviously, I've been alone for three. I've been living a single man's life for three months, 
And I've been able to get up, do my morning pages, been able to set my own rhythm, my own schedule. And then when Liza's here, like today, now you know we're we're here in the in the in the farm. Liza is she is pretty stuck here because it can't drive. You can't she can't drive in the UK. Um, and we have a we have a trip coming up to Madrid next month, which is really busy. I'm going to be doing some production there, production work, and Liza's um, putting together the massage team for a poker tournament. So we're going to be there for three weeks. So we're both really busy, um, insanely busy, and we have so much that both of us need to do. Um, and it it's it's really difficult. I find it really difficult to um, give up that space. Like so, so I said to 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 Liza, okay, so I'm going to be done with a client at half past four. So I will look after Zia from half past four to seven. And then I have another podcast guest, so I can then take it from eight o'clock afterwards. So I think it's like some time. And then I said, I'm going to take Zia shopping in that time. Oh, I, I, I want to come shopping with you. And, and, and there's a part of me going, well, no, if you want to come shopping with us, then you don't need the time to work, so I'll work. And that's how my logical, rational mind works. It's like I need to take every scrap that I can and, and then it's not until I'm just like, okay, this is now overwhelmed. I'm obviously choosing not to, I don't drink or anything. How do I deal with that overwhelm? Well, for me, it just, it, it manifests in my little irritations in the way that I will be irritable. So for me, like what I'm hearing you talk about and, and how it's reflected in my life is, is, is from a man's perspective, is that challenge of, being making the money, especially as like a, an entrepreneur stroke um, freelancer or whatever, where I don't have regular money coming in, and also spending time with my family and allowing my wife time to pursue her dreams is really difficult and really challenging and actually takes great vulnerability to be able to say, do you know what? F the work. I'm just going to just give this time up and um, see what happens <laughs> until I lose, start losing contracts. And Liza would be like, what the fuck? Why, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> I don't know. It's really difficult. But it, it's, if anyone's listening to this, it's, it's all about co- communication. Like if you're not communicating these things, it's going to be a disaster, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, the first my first marriage, it was almost like there wasn't any time to communicate Mm. you know and so yeah that's that's I think was probably why things didn't pan out for us yeah because you're right you're either you're either looking after the kids or you're trying to or you're 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 sleeping yeah (laughs) or you're or you're not in a fit state to have a conversation yeah. And then you get some of the resentment bubbling up, um, you know, kind of. Um, so from my side, my resentments were literally that I was doing everything for the children all the time. And of course yeah. I was because he was at work um, earning the money, as you 
just highlighted. And um, and yet his resentments were at the weekend when he wasn't on call. He wanted to be able to do what he loved doing um, um, for a bit. And I didn't have the mental capacity to look at it and go, well, of course he does. Of course he does. Of course he needs two hours out on his bike or whatever. Of course he does. I thought, well, you, don't, you haven't seen your children all week. Why don't you want to spend time with them now at the park? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course he didn't want to do that, but it didn't mean he didn't love them. It just meant he was a human being sort of scraping around for an ounce of free time. <laughs> it is um, the difference between men and women, yeah, right? Isn't it? Absolutely flipping tricky. Yeah, Liza said to me the other day, she said, it, it's sometimes it feels like you just don't care, you know? I'm like, I, I get that. I get that. I'm very driven, very focused, very laser-like, very regimented. I, I can I can see how you don't care, but trust me, trust me, I do. Um, but but the, I think the difference between me and Liza, and I, you tell me, I think this is probably going to be prevalent in most, most women, is Liza will um, schedule her life around Zia, and I schedule Zia around my life. Okay. And I'm, and I'm cool with that. So if if Liza, when Liza went to um, the UK for a week, when we lived in Los Angeles and hired Zia for the week, <laughs> it was like, okay, Zia, this is the time I got to work. And then in this is what you're going to do when I work. And this is who's going to look after you. And this is who's going to look after you. And then this is the time I'm going to spend with you, right? And then, and then uh, and, and that might mean that she would get an hour extra screen time than she would with Liza, for example, you know, or I don't know, maybe she wouldn't go out running and playing in the park for an hour, you know, and and whereas Liza would do it the other way around. And then Liza would end up getting depleted. Zia would get more out of it. And but my mentality was like, no, no I've got to get this shit done. Like, you know. So very different. And we just got to appreciate and love and respect that men and women are different. All men are different. All women are different. We're all different. One of my um, earliest memories is as my dad's a retired research scientist. And one of my earliest memories of him is sitting, he'd be sitting, he'd be sitting with us oftentimes in the living room with a tray with some lined paper and he'd literally be inventing something oh, oh. <laughs> and there he'd be and I remember as a small child I'd go up to him and sort of tug on his trouser leg say dad can I have a hug yeah yeah and he'd look at his watch and give you a hug at half seven. Oh. and do you know what it was probably only last week that I resolved that mm. and and I carried that disappointment in my heart and in my head until about last week. And, and, um, and I've resolved it. I'm telling myself a different story about it. And I, yeah, I won't go into the, the, the sort of depths of that thinking, but suffice to say that, you know, that, that was a toughie as a young child because I had absolutely no awareness Nothing I could bring um, to the forefront of my mind as a way of processing that response from him in any way other than a negative way. Mm. And, um, but yeah, give you half seven. Ah, I did something similar the other night because I didn't, I didn't cater for the fact that the girl's jet lag would impact me. (laughs) I don't know why. So the first night they arrived, 
I say to Liza, I'll put Zia to bed at midnight, and she didn't go to bed until six o'clock in the morning. Well, I'm still on UK time, which means I just didn't sleep. And then I had to go to work at eight o'clock, go to work, but I had stuff to do at eight o'clock. Yeah. So three nights in, I'm I'm gone. Like I'm I'm out of it. And I said to Liza, like I'm you're gonna have to sleep with Zia tonight because I, I need to go to bed now. It's like 10 o'clock. And then I, I get in a bed and then Zia bounds in a bed next to me. And without thinking, I went. I went, no, Zia, you can't sleep with me. Liza, I need this sleep. And then she just started crying. And I was like, oh, no. I was like, Look, Zia, Zia, I, I love sleeping with you. But daddy just needs to really get us. I, like, I, I screwed it up completely, you know, because obviously she has no idea. She just wants to sleep with her dad. She loves her dad. And if her dad's saying, don't sleep with me, get out of my bed. It means he doesn't like you, right? Like, so, you know, that was like uh, an example of that kind of kind of thing. Not as extreme, but, you know. Um, I put you my, made it right. Sorry, you made it right straight away for her. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and for anyone listening to this, you know, like we're talking about um, relationship skills and communication and talking to people, <clears throat> just, to, just to let you know, even with all the coaching that I've done and the training that I've done, um, I am, I would say, still 70% more likely to do the wrong thing, but I am 100% likely to do the right thing after I've screwed it up. So, like, I'm, I'm an expert at repairing my ruptures, but I still have a lot of ruptures because I still have a lot of work to do in terms of putting that pausing learning to just go away when my uh, sympathetic nervous system is activated, all those kind of things. So if you're listening to this thinking, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that, don't, don't, don't worry about it. Just be really, really good at after you've screwed things up or and I screw things up, after you've had a fight or you, you've upset your kid or something, just, just go in your room and just say to yourself, how can I take 100% responsibility for what just happened? And then go and take responsibility for that. And, and and you'll be all right. You'll you'll get it more. I think working for me. I love right? that. I love yeah. that. That's a that's a, a successful approach to life. Hundred percent committed to putting right the screw ups. Yeah, just just being uh, coming from that place of compassion. You know, it's like like we, even with the with the porridge, the porridge thing. Realize like how can I take responsibility for that? Well, the way that I can take responsibility for that is actually the the, the tone and the way that I communicated with her when I was frustrated by it. So there is a way of me being able to communicate with Liza, look, I understand that that is an issue for you, but it's not an issue for me, right? Like I, I, I worry a little bit that we'll have a daughter growing up who's super germ-phobic because we keep saying these things when like later, later on she came to me and she's like, oh, dad, touch my mochi. And, and I was like, oh, uh, no, I haven't washed my hands. And I was like, what? That's not you. Who just said that? Right. So, so, you know, that, that, that for me, the 100% responsibility is, Hey, let's have a conversation about germs, washing hands and stuff. Okay. Because I, I want us to have a win-win here, which, which we're both happy with. 
right? Because you really want to make sure that I care and wash my hands all the time. And I want you to know that I really do care. And there's a load of times I'm going to not wash my hands because I'm going to forget. Because interestingly enough, when I was a child, my parents would smack me if I ate with my hands, right? So something, there's something there, right? You know, there's something there. So Anyway, Wendy, we're at the top of the hour. I got to go be a dad for like 15 minutes. I need minutes. to go um, back into my past life and bring you the news headlines on the hour. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you used to do? Yeah. I love it. That's pretty cool. Our next have, update, half past. You have got a great broadcasting voice, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, you come across very well. Thank you. Maybe one day I'll float back down that avenue. But um, it was very, very, very much fun while it lasted. Yeah, yeah, it was good talking to you. Uh, anybody wants to reach out to Wendy, just give me an email at thestridemethod at gmail.com and I'll put you in touch with her, um, especially if you're struggling, struggling with large families, you know, or you want to you wanna create a perfect broadcasting voice, then let me know and I'll put you in touch with Wendy, for sure. Wendy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. I really oh, appreciate it. Thank you so much, Lee. Totally appreciate it. Hello, people. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Wendy. What a lovely woman she is, right? And what a trooper looking after seven kids. That cannot be easy. I know how challenging it is to have one, let alone seven. No, I haven't got one. I've got two. Easy to forget that you've uh, only got two when one's 21 years of age. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you have a sobriety story to tell and you want to appear on the 1000 Days Sober podcast, then send me an email at thestridemethod at gmail.com. If you want to give back and say thank you uh, for the continuing growth and evolution and prosperity of this podcast, then uh you know, go to your local podcast player and rate and review it and tell somebody about it. You could change somebody's life. Last and not least, this podcast would not be put together if it wasn't for uh, the amazing talents and work ethic and desire of our producer, Stan. Stan is currently in the Ukraine. He is a proud Ukrainian. He's uh, fighting for his life and everybody else's life out there. So we're taking donations for uh, Ukraine. If you want to give back and help out Stan, our producer, then email me at the strive method at gmail.com. We'll make that happen. Okay. All right. Much love, everybody. Take care.